Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, we've come to expect good advice from the peripatetic and prolific travel writer and guide Rick Steves. But over his many years educating Americans about the joys and pitfalls of foreign travel, Steves has grown philosophical about its importance. He calls it a political act. Steves is on the road four months out of every year. He's been writing about his travels since 1980 when he self-published his first Europe Through the Backdoor guidebook. In this talk, he covers a wide range of topics, including the impacts of European unity, global warming and poverty, the importance of confronting travel-related fears and American myopia, crises of economic distribution and work-life balance, and the importance of learning from history. Steve says he loves the stimulation and mind-opening challenges of travel. Rick Steve spoke at the Seattle Central College Broadway Performance Hall on December 10th as part of AARP's Life Reimagined Speaker Series. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here and to share with you the most important 75 minutes of travel information that I've learned after spending a third of my adult life overseas, living in a 9 by 22 by 14 inch carry on the airplane sized suitcase. <laughs> after all this travel, for me it's just so much fun to be able to come home and, and give these talks, so thanks a lot for being here. And um, what I want to talk about today is travel as a political act. And uh, you know, I've got a book about this, and ever since, well for the last decade, I've really felt that here in the United States, we need to be encouraged to get out of our comfort zone and hang out with people who find different truths to be self-evident and God-given. It helps us come home, uh, I think, more with a mindset of uh, building bridges rather than building walls. And the fact is... <laughs> and the fact is, we're 4% of this planet, but there's 96% outside of our, wall, our, our borders, and it's not going away. And we, this world's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and we need to play with our neighbors. We need to get out there. And uh, one thing great about travel is it, it, it helps us gain an empathy for the other 96% of humanity. You come home, you're probably more thankful than ever to be an American, but you're also much more uh, in tune with the rest of the world. I think that's just a beautiful thing. In fact, I think that's the most important souvenir you can bring home, is that broader perspective. Now, I've been given these talks and teaching ever since I was a kid here at the University of Washington. And I didn't have any grand plan, but if I look back on it, I, it sort of has a, a, a logical sort of evolution in my teaching. Back in the 80s, I had a class in the experimental college called uh, European Travel Cheap. And it was Europe through the back door, basically. That was the first book I, I wrote back in 1980. I've updated it every year since then with all the practical skills. That was sort of the foundation of how to travel, how to catch the train, how to stay healthy, how to pack light, and so on. Then in the 90s, I found myself slipping up that Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs. And, um, you know, you've got the train pass, you got your hotel, and you got a nice dinner. How are you going to appreciate and enjoy the culture, the history, the art, the wine, the cuisine? I wrote a book called Europe 101, and that was my passion. And then since about 9-12, I've realized there's something even loftier in that Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs, and that's what I talked about, traveling in a way where we open up to the rest of the world. And believe it or not, that you've got to think about that because we're really good at traveling in a way where we don't open up to the rest of the world. You know, we're very inclined to go all the way to another country and lay on the beach in Mazatlan with a bunch of Americans and then go home with nothing in the area of a broader perspective at all. You can go to Managua or you can go to Mazatlan. The choice is yours. And I just want to challenge you to broaden your perspective through this kind of travel. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, my beat is Europe, because for me, Europe is the wading pool for world exploration. That's, I've just decided I want to focus all my teaching energy, my research time, and so on, in Europe. Because, um, actually, I'm just trying to get Americans to, to, to take one step beyond Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gone to Orlando three or four times? Try Portugal. It's just a, a few more hours farther to the east. And, uh, and, and that just, if you don't like it, go back to Orlando. You know, I mean, I'm comfortable with that. There's only one guidebook that outsells mine and it's the guidebook to Disneyland. Uh, and I just, I can't, that's a whole category of travelers that are, are not 
they travel for la-la land instead of reality, you see, and you can get that in spades if you know where to go. But I'm really excited about reality. I mean, there's a lot of reality out there. A lot of people go, well, there's refugees over there. Should I really go over there because there's all these refugees? That's a good reason to go over there, to learn about the world. You know, in no danger. Worst case scenario is you have to wait for an hour because there's some desperate people that filled up the train before you needed to catch the next one. For the rest of your life, you'll have a little more understanding for that reality, which you're not likely to get here in Seattle. Now, in my teaching of how to travel, I bring home the magic. That's what I like to do, is just inspire people to get out there and embrace life. And there's all sorts of thrills. There's natural wonders. We got natural wonders all around us here, but in Europe, they're very accessible. You know, if we were in Europe, there'd probably be a lift going up to Mount Rainier. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, can you imagine riding the lift up in the morning, having breakfast in a space needle type restaurant, you haven't even worked up a sweat yet, and then spend three hours tight roping on a ridge, like this, on a ridge. On one lit side, you got lakes stretching all the way to Germany. On the other side, you got the most incredible alpine panorama anywhere, the Eiger and Jungfrau. And ahead of you, you hear the long legato tones of an Alphorn announcing that the helicopter-stocked mountain hut is open. It's just around the corner, and the coffee schnapps is on. That is a beautiful moment. Anybody can have that. You don't even have to climb the mountain to get that natural thrill. Cultural wonders are another thing that I'm all excited about teaching as a tour guide and as a travel writer and as a TV host. Uh, it can be simple little things like cheese. When I was younger, I thought cheese was no big deal. It's orange and the shape of the bread. Here, cheese sandwich. <laughs> and then I learned there are different cheeses. And then I learned there are people who are evangelical about their cheeses. You go into a cheese shop in Paris and it's a festival of mold. And the cheesemonger sees this wide-eyed bumpkin of a tourist. Come over here, monsieur. Smell this goat cheese. Ooh, it smells like the feet of angels. You know, that sort of... You know, you're going to go, oh, it smells like the feet of baseball players to me. But um, <laughs> it's okay. You don't need to love it. But it is fun to go home and know that there are people who can spend a lot of money for cheese and think it's a good value, you see. It just opens you up to different things that different people are excited about. I got a history degree at the University of Washington accidentally. I didn't plan it. I didn't aspire to be a historian. I just woke up in the dorm one morning and it occurred to me, I've got seven history classes under my belt, three more, and I'm a historian. <laughs> Let's push on through. <laughs> it was fun. I couldn't believe they were giving me credit for this stuff because I had been there and history was real to me. And that's something that really strikes me very interesting, especially when we think about the political discourse in our society today. There's very little respect for history. We can look at what's going on right now and we can see the same thing with the same underlying frustrations and fears and so on. History is how we learn about handle the problems we have today and, and how to shape where we're going tomorrow. It's so exciting to have an appreciation and a respect for history. A hundred years from now, they're going to look back at our generation and just go, wow, what an amazing time. And we're right in the middle of it. And when we travel, being mindful of that makes your trip, I think, better. I was uh, recently in Berlin, and it was the opening day of their new Reichstag building. You know, and, and uh, it, you know, the, in, in Berlin, the last days of World War II were fought literally on the rooftop of this building, Russians fighting Germans. Of course, Germany lost. The country of Germany was split. Uh, the capital moved over to Bonn. Suddenly, a few decades later, the Cold War is over. Germany's united. The government goes back to Berlin, and they've got this bombed-out Reichstag building that was on no man's land on the wall, you know, for a generation. In good European style, they don't bulldoze that building and build a new parliament building. They take the historic one, and they renovate it, and they incorporate into the top of that a beautiful modern element, this marvelous dome. And I was there on opening day. And uh, it was so exciting, and it's free, it's open mostly for, I mean, it's designed for German citizens, but tourists are more than welcome. You walk up that spiral ramp all the way to the top, powerful architectural symbolism. I was up there in the top with Germans looking down over the shoulders of their legislators on their, uh, their desks down below, and I thought, wow, this is designed to remind German legislators that the citizenry is going to keep an eye on and uh, that's a good idea after what the politicians did in, through Germany in, in, a, in the last century, you know. And, and I was up there on the top of that building on opening day surrounded by teary-eyed Germans. Now, anytime you're surrounded by teary-eyed Germans, <laughs> something exceptional is going on. And it occurred to me, wow, this is a very important symbolic moment in the history of a great nation. With the opening of this new parliament building, it was the closing 
of an ugly chapter in the history of a great nation. No more division, no more communism, no more fascism, a united country starting a new century with a new capital building looking into a promising future. I was, I was moved. You can imagine how exciting that was. Many of those teary eyes old enough to remember when Berlin was just rubble, literally flat. I looked around and I saw the other American tourists up there and it occurred to me not one of them had a clue. They were not touched by that. They were not moved by that. They were worried about their batteries. Why don't they air condition this place and where can I get a Coke? And I just thought, I'm living in a dumbed down society. And I don't want to live in a dumbed down society. And I've thought about this and I think there's powerful forces in our society that would find it convenient if we were just dumbed down. It's easier to make money off of people when they're dumbed down. It's easier to take them down a path that a nation doesn't want to go when they're dumbed down. And I vowed then and there in my own little world as a travel writer that I don't want to take the easy way to make money off of people and just fun in the sun on the beach and that sort of thing. I want to challenge my travelers to be engaged and smartened up. And uh, I just think it's important for all of us in whatever walk of life we are to challenge our neighbors and our workmates and our customers to be engaged. It's really more important than ever right now. And I've noticed in Europe, it's not a partisan thing. You don't dumb people down to con them into your way of thinking. Regardless of your political agenda and somebody else's in Europe, they want a smart electorate because they know the consequences if you don't have a smart electorate. Look at any of the people that have taken countries down mistaken roads and look, look at who their constituents are and uh, think of the importance of having a thoughtful electorate. So in our travels, we can be engaged. And I'm thankful I can write guidebooks that challenge people to be engaged. I'm so thankful I work in public television where I can write scripts that assume an attention span, <laughs> that respect people's intellect and bring home shows that are driven not by a passion for keeping advertisers happy, but driven by a passion for helping people embrace other ways of living in places outside of our borders. It's just hard for me not to break into a pledge drive right now. <laughs> <laughs> But I gather you're all on board, so I won't do that. <laughs> a great thing about travel is the people you meet. You know, when we live here, I'm just checking this room here, it is, it's about hom as homogenous as my world in Edmonds, and uh, it's natural. We worship and party and play with people that are kind of do it like us. But when you get out of your zone, you hang out with people who do things differently, and I just think that's stimulating. It carbonates your world to realize that the average person on this planet sits, does not sit on a toilet when they go to the bathroom. I've been on airplanes in South Asia where there's a decal over the toilet saying you don't stand on this and squat over it to use it. I think it's fascinating to realize that the people who use spoons and forks are in the minority. We are not the norm. That's a beautiful thing. We're a beautiful minority, but we're not the norm. And you learn that when you, when you hang out with different people. I like to be in the situation where people stare at me instead of me staring at them. It doesn't have to be an earth-shaking encounter. This is just goofy. I was, in, uh, I was in Italy a while ago, and this little kid was staring at me. Finally, his dad said, excuse my son, he stares at Americans. <laughs> I said, well, why is that? He said, last week we were having our hamburger at McDonald's, and my son, noticing the fluffy white bun, said, Dad, why do Americans have such soft bread? And the dad said, son, it's because Americans have no teeth. <laughs> now... I, I don't think the dad meant anything by that. It's just dads entertain themselves by saying stupid things to their kids when they've got <laughs> child duty. And, um, and the kid was confused and he stared at me and I showed him my teeth to overcome that little bit of misunderstanding between peoples. But it is interesting to think of all the silly little mis misunderstandings we have about different societies. I could give you so many interesting examples and you gain these as you travel. For me, connecting with people is what really makes the experience vivid. If I'm making a TV show or writing a guidebook or leading one of our tours where it's not connecting people with people, it's going to be a flat experience. That's the mark of a good trip. One easy place to connect with people is Ireland. Ireland, I think. It's one of my most favorite countries. And I think it's one of my favorite places in part because in Ireland I, I enjoy the sensation of understanding a foreign language. I just, I feel like I'm understanding a foreign language. I, I really don't know what that's like. But in Ireland, people have the gift of gab and they've got this wonderful art of conversation. My theory is, and these guys speak Gaelic first. 
you, they're talking to each other in Gaelic. A tourist walks up without missing a beat, they turn to you and speak English, and then you say goodbye, they flip back into their Gaelic. This is in the west coast of Ireland, the Gaeltec. A Gaeltec is a national park for the preservation of the traditional culture. The government actually recognizes the value of keeping the traditional ways of life alive so the people in the big, the kids in the big cities can go out there in the summer and, and have, have a cultural field trip and know from where they came culturally, where small farms can, can actually survive into the next generation. I know it makes no sense by our standards, but in Ireland, they really like to subsidize that. And you go out there and Gaelic is the first language. And my theory, it, they're called Gaeltex. It's way in the west coast of Ireland when they stand on the bluff and they gaze out at the Atlantic and they say, ah, the next parish is, over, is Boston, you know. <laughs> and uh, you meet people that just are experts at conversation. If you're heading off to a palace or a museum or a castle and you meet these guys and you get involved in a conversation, this is, what it's at. This is where it's at. Forget your itinerary. These guys, I mean, I, was, I, get, I get just enthralled by my conversations. I was talking to these guys. After a while, I asked the guy on the left, uh, were you born here? He said, no, it was about five miles down the road. <laughs> Later on, I asked him, have you lived here all your life? And he said, not yet. <laughs> you know, so um, it's just, uh, the, the Irish have this wonderful gift of gab. And my theory, my personal theory, why they're so fun to talk to is I think they're thinking in a Gaelic template, which must be a more romantic way to talk. And then they translate it literally into English. I don't know, but it just seems to me they're on some sort of a different template for their conversation. You know, um, the big news in Europe is the unification of Europe. Today, 300 million people have the same coins jingling in their pockets, and you don't show your passport when you cross a border. Uh, and uh, it's just really an amazing story, the unification of Europe. Now, it's hard to unify a whole continent of historically bickering, proud, sovereign nations. Uh, but can you imagine in 1947, Europe, sitting in the rubble of a bombed-out continent, caring people, statesmen, philosophers, you know, local leaders, got together and thought, this is insanity. Twice in our lifetimes we've bombed ourselves crazy. We've got to do something really, really out of the box here, or our children are going to be digging out again. And they say, we've got to weave the, our economies together. So, it, it, there's no, that, so a, big, a third world war would be inconceivable and they set out to create the United States of Europe. Now, it's a stuttering, awkward evolution for 50 years. Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. But it has come a long way. Europe is here to stay. Greece could fall away. They could have problems with their euros, whatever. But the great thing about the European Union is you can laugh and insult them for all of their over-the-top bureaucracy and their political correctness and all their regulations and their passion for the environment and health care and education and stuff like this. But um, <laughs> the beautiful thing about Europe is Germany and France will never again go to war. It just can't happen because their, their economies are one. It just, it can't, it's just not going to happen. And that, is, that makes everything else insignificant. I, for that reason, I really celebrate the unification of Europe. Now, Europe is a big economy. They are 400 million people that produce about $15 trillion of stuff a year. To put it in perspective, we are 300 million people that produce the same $15 trillion of stuff a year. Now, a lot of Americans are quick to put down Europe. They're, they're, they're threatened by Europe's social you know, sensibilities and everything. And they say, look at these basket case socialists over there. Uh, they don't make as much money as we do. It, it takes them 400 million people to make $15 trillion, and we make it with 300 million people. We make more per person. Well, that's true, but that's not the full honest analysis because if they told you the full story, they would say, yes, they make, we make more per person, but Europeans choose to work 20% fewer hours per year and willingly make and consume 20% less stuff a year so they can have time with their families. I mean, that's just their choice. It's not a right or a wrong thing. I'm certainly thankful I run my business here in the United States where I can turn on a dime and employ people well and make plenty of money. I have fun with my business here. I'd be demoralized in Europe, but as a guerrilla entrepreneur, but if you want to look at European society, we have to acknowledge that by every measure, they produce as much per hour as we do. And in the name of family values, they choose to work fewer hours. Okay, that's just the way it is. Now, when you go to Europe, they work hard, but they also play hard. These guys, these are grown men. These are not students. <laughs> It's a Wednesday in Amsterdam. I'm doing my research for my guidebook. I find these guys partying in the little rental party boat, and I think maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a 
festival today that I should know about for my guidebook. So I ask them, hey guys, what's going on? And they say, it's Wednesday. <laughs> we cut out from work early on Wednesday and we get together with our friends in the boat. You want to get in? You know, so that's just annoying, frankly. <laughs> Europeans play so much and I think that might be one reason why they threaten us so much. It's just they're not that interested in pedal to the metal, working ourselves into an early grave like we are. We have the shortest vacations in the rich world here in the United States. My friend John DeGraff, he works in Seattle, produces great TV shows. He's, got a, he's running a little movement called uh, Take Back Your Time. And uh, uh, it's just reminding Americans that we got the shortest vacations in the rich world and most other wealthy societies look at us and shake their heads and go, what's with you guys? Uh, John's national holiday is October 23rd because by his estimate, if you were uh, a European working as hard and long as we do in America, October 23rd would be the last day you would go to work that year. That's really annoying, I think, yeah. So, you know, it's an option. It's an option. You hear about our Christ's financial crisis and their financial crisis and all of our hardships. Uh, I do want to preface any discussion of the economic crises in American Europe by the fact that 90% of humanity wishes they had our problems. Half of humanity is trying to live on $2 a day. That's just a fact. I mean, a crisis is when 90% of your family income goes to rice and the price of rice goes up 30%. That's a crisis. Not when the cost of gas goes up for us or something like that. So, you know, we're filthy rich. We're growing filthy richer all the time. And if there is a crisis, you could argue that it's a crisis of distribution within our wonderful economic pie. And that's a whole different discussion. But when you go to Europe and you look at their angry people in the streets, they've got their crisis too. And I think a lot of their crisis is doing, dealing with the fact that they used to be a young society with a lot of young people working and a few people retiring, not living very long. And now they are a geriatric society with not many people uh, working and a lot of people living into their well into their retirement. Uh, when you have a, d a demonstration here, by my experience, it's generally because they have to change the rules on the workers. Europe has these amazing uh, uh, benefits. Uh, 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 what's the word uh, when you give people stuff? Uh, there's Entitlements, thank you. They've got entitlements that are just really generous. They make ours look uh, quite stingy. And uh, these were, I think, compassionate and smart and sustainable as long as they had a young society. They are so good and effective that they made the society very wealthy and very well educated. Now, when you have a society that suddenly becomes rich and smart, two things happen. They live longer and they have fewer children. It's just the natural thing that happens when you get smarter and better educated. So what happens is suddenly that pyramid-shaped society with a lot of young people working to sustain a few people retiring into these lavish retirement plans, it flip-flops and you got a few people working, lots of people retiring, and they're living way too long. I mean, I hate to say that at an AARP event, but they are living way too long. And what happens is, it's just, the, you can imagine the arithmetic isn't there anymore, right? Something's got to give. So the politicians, sorry lot in life these days, is to stand in front of their people and say, sorry, we've got to change the uh, rules on you. We've got to break the promise. Your parents got it. Your friend who retired five years ago got it. But you've got to work five more years. Something like that. That's enough to make decent people go downtown and burn a Starbucks. <laughs> and that's what they do. Uh, they go out and they march. Europeans are really quick to march. It's how they vent. It's a healthy thing for their society. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of adjusting going on as they rejigger their society to deal with the geriatric reality and unsustainable entitlements. And the people get together and it's not unusual to see a million people marching on the streets in Europe. In the United States, we have the same frustrations, but we don't march. It's just way too much exercise. We need to vent just like these people are venting, but this is my personal theory. In order for us to vent, we go home and find a TV network that affirms our frustrations and then we shake our fists as we watch it, you see. And that's how we march. And it's a very interesting thing when you have these frustrations and in Europe when you see people marching, and you will, and they'll be marching for the rest of our lives, don't let it keep you away. A lot of people look at the demonstrations in front of Syntagma Square and they think, oh, the sky is falling in Greece, we can't go there. These people are being uh, confused by sensational media. It's tough. I would not want to be a worker in Greece counting on a, on a retirement, but to be a traveler there, I've traveled there this year a lot. We must have taken 20 groups to Greece this year, all through the year, 
and we had nothing but good times. Uh, as a tourist in Greece, in spite of their economic hard times, you won't miss a beat. Okay, so I'm just reminding you, you're going to see demonstrations, it's a healthy thing, and, and you should anticipate them in the future. The big news in our generation is the movement to the east in Europe. With the end of the Cold War, almost overnight, you get 100 million new capitalists in Eastern Europe. It's a festival of pent-up entrepreneurial spirit as they just are really scrambling to catch up. And when you join the EU, you've got help from the West, help from the wealthier countries investing in your infrastructure. So Eastern Europe now has the infrastructure they would like and they're still catching up you know, with that infrastructure foundation. This is a shot of people dancing on the streets in Krakow. And it reminds me how bleak it was back in communist times. I remember when I was traveling in Poland in communist times, uh, for instance, uh, it, it was just bleak and demoralizing. Uh, you know, they had no, uh, they had a command economy with no respect for the laws of supply and demand. Somebody upstairs forgot to order windshield wipers and uh, there's not enough wipers to meet the demand. Uh, in, in, in Poland, you know, back then people took their windshield, people who were lucky enough to own a car, took their windshield wipers in with them at night. Again, it's because somebody forgot to order them. Demand exceeds supply. When that happens, thieves aren't stupid. They're going to steal your windshield wipers at night and sell them for a fortune on the black market tomorrow morning. Now, of course, the laws of supply and demand are kicking in. There's more than enough windshield wipers produced and uh, distributed to meet the demand. And people in Warsaw are leaving their wipers on their car all night long. <laughs> it's so fun to travel in Eastern Europe. Now, uh, it's just a... As there's an energy in the streets and a real appreciation for stability and democracy and relative affluence. Uh, and they got their struggles, but I just find it's a happy time to be in Eastern Europe. Also, in my travels, especially in Eastern Europe, you, you realize different people have different baggage and they respond to problems differently. Uh, you know, uh, Poland supported America in our preemptive strike against Saddam Hussein when nobody else would because Poland said somebody should get, take care of Hitler before he gets out of hand and everybody ignored them, and Poland was the first people to, to pay the price for appeasement on Hitler, and they thought, you know, this is the same kind of thing going on in Iraq, so Poland was predisposed to support a preemptive attack on what they considered the, the tyrant of the day, you see. Uh, right now, when you're in Poland, you get an empathy in Poland for the struggles of the people in, the U in Ukraine, because Poland has lived under the thumb of Russia, and so is Ukraine, paying the price for being, you know, a client state of Russia. Uh, Poland spoke out for Ukraine, they get in a spat with Russia, and Russia has a trade war with them, and Russia says, we'll fix you, Poles. Your apple industry is really important, and we buy most of your apples. We're not going to buy any more of your apples. And the Poles, when I was there, said, well, we're not going to let that cripple us. We're going to eat our apples, and we're going to enjoy them right here. <laughs> there were apples everywhere. In every hotel room, there were baskets of free apples. <laughs> apples in the restaurants, apples on the train. Uh, this is the main square in Warsaw, and this character was singing a song and handing out apples, and he was saying, you know, Eat an apple, piss off Putin. <laughs> and it's fun when you're traveling to connect with that kind of dynamic. And it's a, it, it, gives, it gives you an appreciation that other people have their stress points just like we do, and they're different. The charm of Europe for me is its diversity. You know, you travel a couple hours in the, on the, in the car or train, and it's a whole different language, a whole different cuisine, and so on. I just love that. Now, you'd think as Europe is uniting, it would just become strip malls and Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks everywhere. Uh, and the counterintuitive result of all this efficiency, no borders, everybody's got the same coins and so on, is more diversity, not less. Let me explain why. In Europe, there's three loyalties, the region, the nation, and Europe. If you talk to somebody in Munich and you say, where are you from? He might think, I'm from Bavaria. Or he might say, I'm from Germany. Or he might say, I'm a European. You see, talk to somebody in Barcelona, where are you from? They might say, I'm from Catalonia, or I'm from Spain, or I'm from Europe. If you look at any city hall in Europe, you'll find three flags. Here you can see the flag of Scotland in the middle, the flag of Britain, and the flag of Europe, those three loyalties. Most of the headlines in our lifetime have been spats between the regions and the nations. Think about Basque people threatening Madrid, Celtic people in Brittany threatening Paris, Scottish and Irish people threatening London. As Europe is uniting, the nations are withering away as far as being threatened by secessionist movements in their little proud regions. And Europe is having the power and 
Consequently, the nations are less threatened by the regions and they're giving the regions more freedom to wave their flags and speak their languages. More people are speaking the small languages in Europe this generation than they were last generation. That is astounding when you think of how it's just, everything is getting bigger and bigger units because of this rough and tumble aggressive world. The little languages are thriving because of Brussels and because nations are not keeping them down. If you go to Scotland, you'll find a parliament for the Scottish people in Edinburgh, built a few years ago for the first time, this parliament in Scotland instead of London since the year 1707. And just last year, England was confident enough to let the Scottish people have the vote if they wanted freedom. And the Scottish people discussed it and debated it and decided to stick with the UK. If you go to Catalonia, this is that proud region of Spain, uh, Barcelona is the major city. Back a generation ago, you couldn't speak the language, you couldn't dance the Sardana dance after church on Sunday, and you couldn't wave the local flag. To wave the local flag, you would wave your soccer team's flag. That was the equivalent for those people where they wouldn't get arrested. Today, they teach their kids Catalonian first, and they learn Spanish as a second language in school, believe it or not, within Spain. And every Sunday after Mass in front of the cathedral, they get in their beautiful Sardana dance, that big circle dance, celebrate their Catalonian heritage, and Madrid doesn't really have anything to say about it. So this is a big change, a very big change. If you go to an ATM machine in Barcelona, you'll see these language buttons. Four top buttons are all Spanish languages. On the very top on the right is Catalonian, Catalan. That's for the local people of Catalonia. And then opposite that we have Espanol for most Spanish speakers. Uh, for most people in Spain. We got Galego for the Celtic people in the northwest of Spain, Santiago de Compostela. And we've got Euskara for the Basque people. And then there's a button for German, French, English, and a button for everybody else. <laughs> now, if you were to go to an ATM machine in, Bar in, in Basque country, in San Sebastian, you would find the same four buttons on the top. You'd have Basque being first and Catalan being fourth probably, but you would have Catalan on that Basque ATM machine, not because people from Barcelona couldn't speak Spanish or English and get their cash, but at a, as a matter of solidarity for their fellow victims of the tyranny of the majority. Catalonians and Basque people are nations without states and they stick together. It's really interesting. When you travel in North Ireland, you'll see an inordinate amount of people from Basque country and Catalonia because they just like hanging out with fellow victims of the tyranny of the majority. Catholics up in the north of Ireland. It's very interesting to be tuned into those struggles that are happening in Europe these days. This man is Armin Walsh. He is the Indiana Jones of Tyrolean archaeologists. He's got all sorts of wild ideas about renovating great castles in the Tyrol and celebrating their heritage. And he needs a lot of money to do his work. When he goes to get money, he doesn't go to Vienna, which is his political capital. He goes to Brussels. And he doesn't go to Brussels and say, I got a cool idea for Austria, because he'll go home with no money, because Brussels and the EU is not funding political entities created after World War I with lines that ignore ethnic regions. Brussels is funding ethnic regions, true ethnic regions. And the Tyrol, Armin says, I got something for the Tyrol. He goes home with money. The Tyrol is part in Italy and part in Austria. It's quite exciting. In Europe, if you are a wealthy country, wealthier than the average, you give into the European Union more than you get out. And if you're a poor country, you take more than you give in, all right? Uh, it's just that's common sense. And Europe is investing in its infrastructure because Europe needs to create a free trade zone, efficient, to compete with other giant free trade zones, the United States and emerging economies like India and China. And they know they're, they're only as strong as their weakest link. So uh, the countries that had no freeways when I started traveling, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and Greece, today they're laced with super freeways, German quality freeways. And with every one of these freeways, this is in Ireland here, you'll see a sign with a European flag on it that says this project has received 85% financial assistance from the EU. What they're saying is, hey, Ireland, Germany and France paid for this, now you better use it. Because we're keeping up with the United States with these great roads. Produce, you see. All my life, when I've been in Greece, I come to the Gulf of Corinth and I cross that little body of water in a funky Greek ferry. Last time I came, I had a double take. Whoa, look at this bridge. First thing I thought is, this is not a Greek bridge. <laughs> it's in Greece, but it's a German bridge. Built by Germans in Greece 
to get their trucks filled with gummy bears over the Gulf of Corinth down into the Peloponnesian Peninsula to sell to the people of the Peloponnese. That's how it works. Germany invests in that infrastructure so they can trade with these people. And you find that infrastructure really thriving all over the place. They're investing in their infrastructure. Trains are going faster and faster. I was recently on, in the train station in Munich taking trains of pictures of trains coming into the station. Specifically what were cute little birds <laughs> squished to the windshield of those trains. I know, it's terrible. Um, when, when I saw that little bird, I know you wanted a close-up. Um, when I saw that little bird, or what was a little bird, I thought two things. First of all, I thought, this is a dangerous continent if you're a slow bird. And then I thought, this is a surreal image. I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine a bird squished to the windshield of a train. I, I mean, here in, I mean, I live up in Edmonds and those trains come by, but I just, I just can't picture a bird squished onto the windshield. I can imagine a bird sitting on a folding chair on the roof enjoying a cigar and a, and a martini during the ride, but not squished to the windshield. The Europeans are investing in their train and their infrastructure like we cannot imagine. All over the world, countries have their 4th of July. It seems so silly, but when I was a kid, it just didn't occur to me that other countries would have their equivalent of a 4th of a July. And then you go to Switzerland, and you happen to be there on August 1st, and it's every bit as patriotic as our 4th of July. If you go to Norway on May 17, you're in for a party. Ten days after our 4th of July, July 14 in France, Bastille Day. It's just exciting to understand that all these countries have their own holidays, and these countries have their own dreams. When I grew up, I thought there was one ethic, and it was the American work ethic. And I thought there's just the dream, the American dream. Everybody would, if they knew it was good for them, they'd have the American dream. And then I traveled, and I realized good, smart people don't have the American dream. These people have the Sri Lankan dream. Norwegians have the Norwegian dream. Bulgarians have the Bulgarian dream. And that's a beautiful thing to recognize, understand, and I think celebrate. When you travel, you recognize that people have different... Uh, struggles, they have pride, and they have spine. Struggles, pride, and spine. I was in Afghanistan backpacking through a long time ago. I was in Kabul and uh, just went to the back, back of the, the cafeteria that all the travelers went to. I was sitting there minding my own business, having lunch, and a man sat down next to me. He said, can I join you? I said, you already have. <laughs> he said, are you an American? I said, yes. He said, I'm a professor here in Afghanistan, and I want you to know that a third of the people on this planet eat with their spoons and forks, like you do, a third of the people eat with chopsticks, and a third of the people eat with their fingers like I do, and we're all civilized just the same. I thought, you really have a chip on your shoulder about this. And uh, <laughs> every day he seeks out an American to remind him that you know everybody doesn't use spoons and forks. And I thought, he probably thought I thought less of him because he ate with his fingers. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, he was right. I mean, it's just I thought it was less civilized. And I did a very interesting exercise for the rest of my trip through South Asia. I went to fancy, classy, professional res restaurants filled with local professional people, well-dressed, that had no spoons and forks, designed not for tourists but for locals. And there was a ceremonial sink in the middle of the room where people would go and wash up their pants, and they would use their fingers for what God intended them to be used for, to nourish themselves. It was just a holistic, cool way to eat. And I got into that, and it became quite natural. In fact, I had to be retrained when I got home. It reminded me there are different people proud of the way they do things. I was on another trip once in eastern Turkey as a tour guide. It's really fun to be a tour guide in Turkey. And uh, I'll never forget, I was, uh, Turkey is a, is, a, is a country that has such pride. It's 70 million people not living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So there's quite a rough and tumble area. And we were tooling around eastern Turkey. And as a tour guide in eastern Turkey, you don't have a list of famous sites to see. You're on a cultural scavenger hunt. You're just looking for interesting stuff to check out. There was a couple hundred kids filling a high school stadium, having some kind of a rally. Stop the bus, go in, see what's happening. We stopped our bus, went into the stadium. This is way in the east, right in the shadow of Mount Ararat, very close to the border of Iran. And these kids, 200 of them, thrusting their fist into the sky and singing in unison, we are a secular nation. We are a secular nation. I asked my guide, what's going on? Don't people here like God? And she said, oh, we love God, but considering the rising tide of Islamic fundamentalism just across the border to our east, we're very concerned about the fragile and precious separation of mosque and state here in Turkey. This is a pep rally for pluralism. A pep rally for pluralism in Turkey. I never even, it never even occurred to me that could be happening. And it just gave me an appreciation for 
the struggles that people are having in a rough and tumble world, and that is certainly going on today. And in our travels, we can gain an empathy for that. We hear a lot of discussion about global warming. When you travel, you realize most of the world has, it's not a, a thing to debate anymore. Uh, when you go to Europe, you certainly see evidence of people gearing up for a warmer planet with a higher sea. The Dutch, famously frugal. I mean, the joke in the Netherlands is if you want to make a wire, you give two Dutch boys a penny and you let them fight over it. <laughs> they're not going to waste money, I'll tell you that. And they're spending billions of euros beefing up their dikes and their dams. I was just in Hamburg. They've raised 60 miles of embankments on their harbor in anticipation of higher sea levels and storm surges like we paid the price for in New Orleans and New York. In Rotterdam, they've got a storm surge barrier the size of two Eiffel Towers on their side on wheels that can roll in and roll out to block a storm surge. Two Eiffel Towers on their side to block that storm. When you go to the Swiss Alps, you never see a ski lift without plumbing built in because they have to make their snow now. Uh, they've moved the time of bullfights later into the night because people just can't handle it. They don't sell tickets in the shade and tickets in the sun anymore. That used to be, but now it's all shade. Uh, it's so darn hot. Uh, so you're going to find an interesting opportunity in your travels to feel embarrassed about our own country when we are stonewalling all of this uh, opportunity to move forward and, and help this uh, environment. Uh, this is a, a machine moving mountains of sand just off the coast in the, in the Netherlands, day in and day out, working to beef up their dike system. In our travels, we have an opportunity to get into local Nathan Hales, Patrick Henry's, and Ethan Allen's. I remember when I was a kid, these guys were so inspirational, and I really thought they were one of a kind. They're great, but they're not unique. Different cultures have their own Nathan Hales, and it is so exciting to recognize that. It doesn't diminish ours at all. It's delusional to think that we have the only ones. In your travels, it's fun to get caught up in the local Nathan Hale, especially contemporary ones. You know, uh, Nelson Mandela would be a great example in, in South Africa where they're living post-apartheid world. Uh, when you go to Central America, Archbishop Oscar Romero, great example of that today. What an inspiration, Oscar Romero. I was once, I remember a while back, I was fried, I needed a vacation. Our family was planning a vacation to the west coast of Mexico, Mazatlan. I needed it. I was fantasizing about a pristine stretch of tropical beach, swept free of local riffraff, just me and my well-scrubbed white friends, plastic bands around our wrists so we didn't have to dirty our fingers with the local coins and have all the margaritas we wanted, just like that. Oh, it was going to be great. You know what I'm talking about. And then my friend said, you know, it's the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador, and uh, you should come to the, the marches and the celebration. I told my family, I'm not going to be any fun on the beach. I've got to go to uh, El Salvador. And uh, I went there, and it was a talk about, they talk about travels being life-changing experiences, you know. Uh, this was a transformative experience to go there. No more expensive, no more risky than going down to Mazatlan, but a life-changing experience. Anybody can do it. Very, very few people do. I was marching with the P Archbishop Oscar Romero. Remember back in the Contra days in the Sandinistas, civil war down there? We, it was framed to us like communism, and you don't want them to have this hellish communism, so we've got to support the other side that's capitalist. Down there, I don't know what the right answer was, but down there, from the peasants' perspective, it was simply a struggle for land, so they could grow rice and beans so they could feed their kids. There's five families in El Salvador that own nearly all the arable land. If you're an elite family in a little banana republic like El Salvador, you don't want to grow you know, rice and beans for your local peasants. That's stupid. You grow fancy stuff to export north so you can make some serious money on your land, and then you can live like an elite within your, your you know, hard scrabble little country. Uh, the consequence was there was no rice and beans to be grown for local people, and no land to work, and no employment other than to work on the plantations, and then you've got to buy the tinned food exported from the United States down there on your plantation wages. It's a double whammy keeping those peasants down. And when that gets too out of hand, the peasants raise up and you've got to crush them down. And that's what they do. That's called cash cropping, by the way. It's a kind of structural poverty that is a reality for many, many poor people and hungry people on this planet. Uh, you know, down there, they're very tuned into something in the Bible called the Jubilee Year. If you read the Bible, it says very explicitly, every 50 years you should uh, forgive the debt and redivide the land. Now, rich Christians know God must have been kidding. 
And we read that and we gloss right over it and, you know, we blessed are the poor or whatever we want to embrace. But um, if you're a poor peasant in Central America, you zone right in on that. And if you look back in the history, uh, there's some wisdom to that, actually, because it takes about 50 years of unbridled capitalism to get the peasantry so downtrodden that they just rise up and they have to be crushed down again violently by the landowners. 1830s, 1880s, 1930s, 1980s. Every 50 years, a forced jubilee to keep those peasants down. And it's so interesting to go down there and to march with those people. Archbishop Oscar Romero stood with the peasants, stood with the landless. He said, I'm probably going to be killed, but I'm going to stand with you, and I will rise again in my people when I'm assassinated. He was assassinated. He rose in his people. And 25 years later, I was traveled down there several times to learn about that, but the 25th anniversary, we were marching with the peasants, and I've never seen it so clear. Archbishop Romero was there, living in every one of those peasants, and tens of thousands of people on the streets. We came into San Salvador, and we found this monument. And when I looked at this monument, I thought, wait a minute, that's our monument. This is the Vietnam Memorial. What's it doing down in El Salvador? Well, they said, no, it's, we knocked off your design, but this is our monument, and these are our loved ones that were killed. And there's 50,000 people on this memorial, names chipped into that black granite, each one of them killed by the United States. Now, I don't want to, maybe they were communists and we had to kill them. I mean, it's just, that's not the case. The point is, that's baggage. This is a little country of five million people that lost as many people as we lost in the Vietnam War in a land, you know, war, in a land ownership thing. And I just thought, that's baggage. And it occurred to me, what America does is because of baggage. We do things that are not true to us because we've been hurt and we're afraid and, and we want to get even or whatever. I mean, think of the impact 9-11 has on our outlook. More recently, we've got things that are baggage. When we were kids, it was Depression-era baggage, Germans and Japanese, communists, so on. Uh, everybody has baggage, and I want to know what other countries' baggage are. We, never we don't try to empathize with other people's baggage. We want them to cut us some slack because of our baggage. Iran's got baggage. I went to Iran in order to understand what their baggage is. They've got a kind of baggage that caused them to elect a guy named Ahmadinejad. I thought, Persia's pretty, Iran's a pretty smart society. Why would they elect a guy like Ahmadinejad? I wanted to go down there and find out. Wow, it was so interesting to go to Iran. I was afraid at first. We almost left our big camera in Athens and took our little sneak camera in. I thought they'd be throwing stones at an American film crew on the streets of Tehran. I'm so glad I went with the big camera. We were there, and it was the most friendly place I have ever traveled. And... The interesting thing was, you've got this incredible friendliness, and you've got this hateful propaganda. Look at this. There's an eight-story-tall monument, or painting, that says, down with the USA. The American flag made with dropping bombs for stripes and skulls for stars. Awkward. <laughs> really awkward to be walking on the street under that. And I thought about it, and it occurred to me that banner is older than the people on the street. And you can't change that. You know, I didn't know what the people on the street thought, but that banner is older. A lot of traffic jams in Tehran. There's 12 or 15 million people in that city. I was stuck in a traffic jam, like you can see there, once, and uh, it was just silent. And suddenly the man in the next car went like this, rolled down your window, and he handed over a bouquet of flowers. And he said to my driver, give this to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. Ah, that never happens on I-5. <laughs> I was confused by the friendliness I was enjoying with the hateful propaganda. Later on, we were in another traffic jam. It was just silent. We're sitting down there in the traffic jam. Suddenly, my driver just blurts out, right out of the blue, he says, death to traffic. And I kind of had a double take, and I said, wait a minute, I thought it was death to Israel or death to America. And he said, no, right now, it's death to traffic. <laughs> and I said, well, what's with that? And he said, here in Iran, when something is frustrating to us and out of our control, we say death to that. And I thought, now that is so interesting. It occurred to me, that whole death to business is just a person who doesn't speak English very well translating the word damn. <laughs> damn the traffic. Damn the weather, damn election fraud, damn Obama, damn Bush, damn Ahmadinejad, you know? And that's what they're saying. They're saying, damn America. And I thought, hmm, 
Have I ever thought, damn somebody? Have I ever thought, damn those teenagers? As a matter of fact, yes. Now, um, <laughs> it's after midnight. Turn down the music. You know, damn those teenagers. Now, do I really want them to die and burn in hell for an eternity? Not yet. <laughs> but damn those teenagers, I can't get any sleep. So it's something out of their control that's frustrating them. I don't want to make excuses for all the bad things that Iran does, and a lot of people jump right to the bad things their government does. But we owe it to ourselves to have a little more sophisticated understanding of the whole dynamic of this problem than some silly with us or against us bumper sticker. And uh, the stakes are too high for that kind of not, uh, simplicity, I think, in our political discourse. When we travel, we get a better understanding of where this stuff is coming from and what it means. And when you travel in Iran, you find an amazing country, a beautiful country, living in a very difficult time with a lot of baggage. You look at what's going on in our country right now. Think of these images that we're seeing out there in the news. And then think of baggage of other countries. The big baggage in Iran is the Iran-Iraq war. 20 years ago or so, Saddam Hussein in Iran, in Iraq, funded by the United States, invaded Iran, and they lost several hundred thousand people on their bloody western front. Every town in Iran has what they call a martyr's cemetery, like this. And when you go to see them, it's like it happened last week. All sorts of people wailing and mourning. They've done that every year, every Friday for 20 years. And when you look at a, a woman like this, weeping on the tomb of her loved one every Friday for 20 years, you realize that is baggage. Somebody killed her husband or her father or her son. That's real. And you think of this poor woman, the propaganda she's got, the heartache she's got, and you understand that these people are dealing with a lot of complex issues. On my last day in Iran, something really interesting happened. I was work, doing my work on the street, and a woman came across the street, and she said, are you an American journalist? And I said, yes. She did one of these things on my chest. You know, I want you to go home and tell the truth. We're strong, we're united, and we just don't want our little girls to be raised like Britney Spears. <laughs> I thought, neither do we, let's talk, let's talk. And it occurred to me what, she's the kind of person that would vote for Ahmadinejad. And um, the, I thought, they are so afraid, not of somebody taking their oil, but of somebody taking their throne and bringing in Western values, like the Shah did when we threw out their prime minister in 1953 because they nationalized their oil and we put in the Shah so we could have good trade policy. While the Shah was on the throne for a whole generation, they were bragging that the miniskirts are shorter in Tehran than they were in Paris. That's fun if you like miniskirts, but if you're one of the you know, villagers that are so uh, uh, devout and so on, that's a horrible thing, and that's Western incursion into their world. She was scared to death that her little girl would be hijacked by Western values and become a boy toy, a crass materialist, and a drug addict. As you can understand, she might think if she looked at a music video with Miley Cyrus or something like that today. So this is frightening for those people, and when they hear the word regime change, they get very frightened. Who voted for Ahmadinejad? The same people that would vote for the equivalent of Ahmadinejad in our society. Small town, less educated fundamentalists. Good people riddled by fear and, and, and full of love. I mean, there, it's just that challenge that we have. We need to understand them, they need to understand us, and we need to get over fear. We need to get over our fear. Man, there's a lot of fear in our society. Have you noticed lately? <laughs> uh, it's never been so fearful. It's not more dangerous. It's less dangerous now, I think, than it's ever been. But we are conned into thinking it's dangerous out there. It's not. 12 million Americans go to Europe every year and 12 million come back. When I started traveling, people used to say, bon voyage. Now they say, have a safe trip. We'll pray for you. As if you're going to venture out there. Are you going to take your kids? Come on. You've got to understand the statistics. Europeans laugh out loud when they hear that Americans are staying home for safety reasons. If you understood how dangerous it is to, to walk the streets of the United States, if you cared about your loved ones, you would take them to Europe tomorrow. <laughs> this is how I sell tours. <laughs> I mean, for me, fear is for people who don't get out very much. And the flip side of fear is understanding, and we gain that when we travel. I'm not 
particularly courageous. I've just been out there and I realized that uh, I, can, I, can ha I, can, I can get a grip when our, when our media tells us to be afraid. I want to remind you, news has morphed into something completely different in the last generation. News used to be news. When Walter Cronkite said, and that's the way it was, I think that's the way it was to the best of their ability because the networks contributed the news hour to our democracy willing not to make money. It was their contribution to our society. Now it's you know, privately held corporations, legally obligated their stockholders to profit maximize in the short term. It's pedal to the metal. You can't give up the news hour without making money. You gotta juice it up, sex it up, bloody it up. Entertainment has, uh, news has become entertainment masquerading as news. And I am entertained by it. I find it wonderfully entertaining, but I don't wanna let it rewire me so I'm a fearful person. And then people can take me down a wrong road by capitalizing on my fear. That's our challenge today as a nation, I think, is to get a grip and not to confuse fear with risk. It's very easy to do. And of course, I'm in the business of traveling and I feel more, more sure than ever that if you really, really don't like terrorism as much as I hate terrorism, the most powerful thing we can do as individuals is not to stay home but to travel. We don't want to reward the terrorists by being terrorized needlessly and we got to recognize that when we travel, we connect people to people and it makes it tougher for their propaganda to demonize us and it makes it tougher for our propaganda to demonize them. That's a huge accomplishment. So let's keep on traveling, okay? Thank you. Um, I just love traveling <laughs> anywhere where I can meet school groups and clown around with them. I remember I was going to take a picture of this school group and all the, uh, I, I can still hear their, their teacher barking at them. I don't understand the Farsi, but I, I know what she was saying. Girls, this Western gentleman's going to take your photograph and you look like a bunch of floozies. Cover your hair. <laughs> Cover your hair, for goodness sake. And uh, we got their hair covered like that and, and we were good. Am I out of time here? Uh, I, okay, you're just sending that up. Okay, I'm, just let me know if I'm, if I'm talking too long. Um, I was just in um, Palestine and Israel. And I think I'm going to go quicker because I'm talking too long, but let me just use this as a reminder. You can, um, <laughs> you can uh, on my website, you can look at all my TV shows for free anytime you like. We have a one-hour show on Iran. We have a one-hour show on Israel and Palestine. We got lots of other stuff. I've got my travel talks. I've got this talk. I've got art talks and so on. And um, uh, I'm just really into uh, understanding Israel and Palestine and getting both narratives these days. And it's a, it's a one-hour lecture you can watch on my website. But I want to have time to do Q&A here and stuff, so I'm just going to kind of go quickly through. This is Abraham's tomb in Hebron, which is the common uh, ancestor of the uh, Israelis and the Arabs and uh, 4,000 years ago. And they, it's so dangerous where they have both come together to worship that there's bulletproof glass right now separating it. So Israelis, Jews, Jews can worship on one side and Muslims can worship on the other side. And that is kind of emblematic of the uh, situation to me. Um, and I don't have time for this. Uh, I wish I did. That's, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and, and John, I'm going to be another 15 minutes. So okay, sure, no problem. I'll just be right back here waiting. Go back, go back there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, when, you, when, you go to, when you travel, you realize people are into liberty just like we are. I mean, and in fact, this town, they think they got more liberty than us. This is uh, the hometown of Salvador Dali. Uh, Katakes, and uh, you can understand why that would be full of liberty. Um, but as you travel, it's just fun. You meet uh, uh, people that love their cultures. In a little town in northern Italy here, uh, there's a celebration every summer where the older kids teach the younger kids how to make a good ravioli. I just love that. Uh, in this little town in Burgundy in France, they've pooled their money together to make these orbs so visitors can appreciate the beautiful uh, different bouquet of the wine that they produce there. A good nose is a life skill worth investing in in Burgundy. All over Europe, people pay too much for their loaf of bread in order to buy it from the person who baked it. It's just their idea of family values. While we aspire to have a big freezer in the, in the garage so we only have to go shopping every 10 days, they have a tiny refrigerator under their sink in, under their sink in order to have to go to the market every morning and check in with their neighbors. <clears throat> Europeans love their fine wine and they know where to fill it up really cheap. <clears throat> I'm fascinated by how America is so ready to legislate morality. You know, and right now you find people legislating, wanting to legislate morality. Hey, we're all moral. Every person in this room is moral and there's not two moralities exactly the same. And if one of you had the opportunity to legislate your morality on the rest of us, that would be a problem as far as I'm concerned. 
Now, in Europe, my friends remind me, society has to make a choice. Tolerate alternative lifestyles or build more prisons. And then they always remind me, you Americans lock up ten times as many people per capita as we do in Europe. Either you're inherently more criminal people or there is some goofiness in your laws that need to be re-looked at, you see. And uh, when you look at Europe, they got prostitution. Nobody would say prostitution's a good thing, but you can have a policy of criminalizing and incarcerating and putting violence and more money into it, or you can take the crime out of the equation and have it regulated and taxed and minimize harm to the society. It's called pragmatic harm reduction. And when you travel around Europe, you'll find these brothel districts. And um, you know it's just something that they, they would rather have take the disease out of it. When a prostitute hits her emergency button, she's rescued not by a pimp, but by a policeman. And uh, the prostitutes are unionized, and they can't get their license unless they're checked by doctors so they're not spreading diseases. That's the, that's the ideal anyways. If you go into a, a restaurant in Europe and you go down into the toilet and want to uh, use the restroom, you oftentimes will find blue lights. Blue lights. What's going on? You can't see your veins when you're in a restroom with blue lights, so you can't shoot up. There's a lot of junkies on the streets in Europe, and they just don't want them in their warm, cozy bathroom. Shooting up is bad for their uh, clients are uncomfortable. Uh, they don't have more junkies. Theirs are just alive and not in jail. You see, there's a difference. They got 1%. We got 1%. Across the street, this isn't anywhere in Switzerland, you've got a machine that used to sell cigarettes, now it's been rejiggered and it sells government subsidized syringes. They just think, hey, well, they're going to shoot up anyways, let's not have them sharing needles, we're going to have a lot of HIV needlessly. Pragmatic harm reduction rather than just say no moralization. It's not pro-drugs, it's pragmatic harm reduction. We lose twice as many people per capita to heroin overdoses as they do, 18,000 a year compared to 8,000 a year and we've got uh, roughly the same populations. It's an interesting challenge. And they have these very ugly heroin maintenance clinics. But that's where people go to maintain their and, and deal with their challenges. In much of Europe, the word for addicted is the same as the word for enslaved. Drug addicts are sick people, they're not criminals. They're treated like people that need help. And it works for Europeans. We can learn from that. You know, I've been big on marijuana legalization, and wa I'm very proud of Washington and Oregon working to break down the wrong-minded prohibition against marijuana in our country. We're certainly not pro-marijuana. Uh, the people who were uh, co-authoring and pr promoting I-502 with me are not pot smokers. They're civic servants and smart people and people dedicated to uh, the, the health and the well-being of our community. We were endorsed by the uh, Children's Alliance in our state uh, and the NAACP and, and lots of caring organizations. We know that there's no correlation between consumption of marijuana and how strict the laws are. No indication at all. There's not a reservoir of decent people that would love to ruin their lives smoking pot if only it was legal. <laughs> Anybody who wants to smoke pot does. And we've got right now a track record and use does not go up a lot uh, when you legalize. You just take the crime out of the equation. A lot of people say, ah, it's a gateway drug. Marijuana is not that big a deal, but they're right on the way to heroin addiction. Europeans know that the only thing gateway about marijuana is if it's illegal then you got to buy it from criminals on the street that have a vested interest in selling you something more addictive and more profitable. So this is a wonderful, exciting experiment, and uh, we are learning that all of the scare stories about legalization are not happening, and Washington is a leader, and within a few years, follow it. It's going to be interesting. Uh, we're going to tax, regulate, and legalize marijuana and take the crime out of the equation. It's an exciting opportunity to get on board with that. I do want to remind you, again, it's not pro-drugs. It's pro-civil liberties pragmatic harm reduction, and take the rug out from under a huge black market enriching and empowering gangs and organized crime, and instead of that, taxing it and taking that tax revenue and funding good stuff within our government. It works beautiful. It works beautiful. Um, Europe is a fun case study for Americans. They're just, they're so much like us, and we, when we go to Europe, we get a, we get a, see how different societies are dealing with the same problems we're struggling with. To me, Scandinavia is Europe in the extreme. It's the most educated, most highly taxed, most literate, least church-going, uh, and, and most, most satisfied corner of Europe. And when you go to Scandinavia, on the main square is not a church, but a city hall. They kind of worship people getting together and having good government up there. I love to talk to my friends all over Europe, and they're my sounding boards to bounce these ideas off of. And uh, there's so much we can learn from our European friends, or people who live in different societies. The United States is a very compassionate country. We're beautiful people, but we have a hard time dealing with the reality of a gap between rich and poor. That's what really strikes me. And uh, uh, it takes a boldness, it takes an honesty to, be, to, to have an appetite for learning about the gap between rich and poor. And when you travel, 
If you travel with your heart open and your window down, you've got those grubby fingers coming right in at you and it impacts you. And you go home understanding how richly blessed we are and, and, and that there is a reality of half of humanity trying to live on $2 a day. And when you travel, you realize, even if you're motivated only by greed, if you know what's good for you, you don't want to be filthy rich in a desperately poor world. It's just not a nice place to raise your kids. Go down to Central America and find every middle-class neighborhood pools their money to have an armed guard on the street corner so the kids can go to the park safely. Every bank, every pharmacy, every hotel has an armed guard standing in front of it. We are on the way to that if we're not careful. I don't know what the answer is, but I know if you extrapolate where we're heading with this gap between rich and poor, we are on the way to armed guards everywhere. And even if you're one of the lucky ones that can afford to live behind designer fortifications, it's a failure of a society. And we need to grapple with that honestly and boldly because these children are just as precious and deserving as our children. And I just, I, I, I just am so inspired by that opportunity. There's so much going on on this planet and when we travel, we get to humanize it. I'll just close with one last image. One of my favorite things as a tour guide is to take my groups into a, a situation that might be a little bit freaky and scary and let them understand it a little bit better. A good example is a whirling dervish in Turkey. You know those monks that whirl and get all dizzy and stuff. Um, I'll just paraphrase what happened here, but I'm with a group of 20 Americans as a tour guide in Turkey. I want to find a dervish that we can watch praying. And I find one. And I say, hi, I'm an American uh, tour guide. Can we watch you pray? And he says, I'm not a photo op. Uh, and I say, I know. And he says, I'll let you watch me pray if I can explain to you what I'm doing. Great, I say. So we meet him. He's got his out outfit on and the sun's going down. And he says, I'm a dervish. That's the Muslim equivalent of a monk. I follow Mevlana. You might call him Rumi. He's kind of the St. Francis of Islam. You know, the prophet of love. Everybody can get his brain, uh, arms around it, his brain around him. It's hard not to love Mevlana. And five times a day, I get into a meditative trance and I meditate on the teaching of Mevlana. And what I do is I put one foot in my hometown, my community, my family. The other foot goes around and celebrates the diversity on God's great creation. One hand goes up and accepts the love of our maker, and the other hand, like the spout on a tea kettle, goes down, showering God's love on his creation. And I lose myself in that idea, and I meditate on the teaching of Mevlana. And when I get into that meditative trance, I become a conduit, connecting God's love with his creation. And I want to make that happen. And we look at him and his head tilted over, his robe billowed out, and he lost himself in that thought. And then as the tour guide, I looked over at all my tourists and see the wonder sweeping over their faces. And I think, this is good travel. They're going to go home with a little better understanding of something. They're going to go home with a little better global perspective. And then when they implement them, that here, as citizens of this great nation of ours, that makes travel a political act. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Rick Steve spoke at the Seattle Central College Broadway Performance Hall on December 10th as part of AARP's Life Reimagined Speaker Series. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum.